0: Constructing Modern Knowledge podcast. Today's episode is a recording of the June 11th, 2020 Ask Me Anything conversation with legendary educator and MacArthur genius, Deborah Meyer. Here's your host, Dr. Gary Stager. Good afternoon or good evening, everyone. I'm Gary Steger, welcome to my Ask Me Anything session. We have a very special guest who I'll be introducing in a moment, Um, but before we get started, I just wanna tell you what to expect and share a couple pieces of information with you. Um, The first is that based on the popular demand for the session, I had to upgrade my Zoom account substantially, um, which of course costs some money. So we have, no. a, we have a virtual tip jar that will remind you about a couple of times. It'll pop up on the screen. And If you're so inclined, you can click on it and send a few shekels or doubloons our way. Um, at the end of the conversation, there'll be an exciting announcement about one of our upcoming guest speakers, someone who Debbie knows quite well, and she'll be happy to hear as um, has confirmed as of this afternoon. Um. And after my guest and I have a bit of a conversation, we'll throw it open to you to ask your questions. Um, As long as Debbie and I hold out and her battery on her phone holds out, um, we'll be here to to speak with you. And um, just raise your hand and my partner, Sylvia Martinez, will unmute your mic and allow you to join the conversation. So I'm really happy that you're here today. It's a great honor and privilege to be joined by one of my favorite people on earth, a real shero of mine, um, someone who's dedicated a life to making the world a better place for kids, who doesn't run away from the hard challenges of making school more productive contexts for learning, and, and who's quite wise. You know, in education, there are a lot of people who are witty or clever or glib, but there's an increasing shortage of wisdom I find in the world. Um, and and it's a great honor to have Deborah Meyer with us. She's a MacArthur Genius Award winner, one of the only, if not the only, public school educators to have that distinction. Um, She's been involved in major school reinvention movements um, for decades, is the author of a number of books. The link to her books um, are in the email you received with the link to this session, and um, so it's it's a great honor to have her with us. She's the returning champion to constructing modern knowledge. She's the only speaker who's been at our event in Manchester four times. Unfortunately, we've had to cancel this year's event due to COVID-19, but all the amazing guest speakers and activities that were planned for 2020 are now um, postponed a year for July 2021, and you'll be hearing about that as well. So. As I said, I'd like to start by by asking Debbie a couple of questions, beginning with talking about some of her life's work, for those of you who are unfamiliar with her accomplishments um, and why she did what she did and how they did it and how it went. And then she's gonna talk about anything she's interested in speaking about, but but I know she's quite um, charged up about the notions of creating democratic schools and engaging community and um, and, and really empowering com- communities to to own and benefit from public education, so welcome debbie. Thanks for coming i'm glad we got the technology to work at the last minute.
1: that um, was fun that was fun that was exciting yeah we we,
0: we gave up Ooh. on your we gave up on your antebellum laptop and went to the phone um, <laughs> and um, so my my first question is for for those folks who are unfamiliar with your work, can you give us a little background on um Central Park East, um, when it started, what it was about, what you did, um, who it served, um, and then we'll take it from there.
1: Well, I came to New York City back from Chicago um, as a kindergarten teacher, and I taught kindergarten for a number of years in central Harlem, and I loved it, and then uh, I, out of nowhere, I mean, there's a number of things that happened during that period, I'm rushing over it, and um but a very a remarkable man named Tony Alvarado got word to me that if I would like to start a school any with any staff and do anything i wanted, uh, he would like me to come to East Harlem where he was the local superintendent, and he backed me all the way now uh, of course, I didn't believe it, but he was right he he truly lived up to that, and I uh, got together with some friends of mine who uh, were into some of the same ideas i was we worked with a woman named lillian weber workshop center for open education and uh, we decided to start the school together Um, the district thought i was the head the head of it they didn't call us principals because these were small schools he was starting a lot of small schools in existing buildings which made the existing building a small school too and uh, we were the uh, the first or the second small schools that County Alvarado started. And uh, I, I didn't uh, want to leave the classroom. I had no ambitions to be a principal. So uh, I took the, a class. I We all taught a class, starting mostly with younger children, kindergarten, first grade, second, and third. But we had uh, one third, fourth, because I don't know, do I remember? No, not exactly. but. Um, Anyway, that I enjoyed that very much too, but uh, unfortunately, after the second year, uh, our parents were getting annoyed because these were all East Harlem parents, whom we had rounded up. A lot of them had had older kids who had had troubles in school or were having trouble themselves. So at first we were known as a school for troubled kids, which we were perfectly happy to be. They seemed to us lovely. And um, Uh, they, you know, some of them wanted different things than we wanted and there was some disgruntled and none of the staff was ever free or available to talk with parents because we were all working with the children and we had a cell phone that, not a cell phone, where where am I? uh, um, one? No, an answering machine. (laughs) (laughs) That said, all the staff is busy with children, call us back after three. And some people thought that, For some people, that was a real convenience. Like, suppose they wanted to tell us that they'd be late picking up their child or something. So, uh, and then there was uh, some meetings that that, um, I was supposed to go to of small school directors or so forth. And uh, at some point, the staff had a revolt. (laughs) And they said, you have to leave the classroom and do all the things we don't want to do. So, uh, I agreed. But we continued to operate as we had as a collective uh, where all decisions were virtually all decisions were made uh, together and um, they were wonderful wonderful people and I I, you know we still love each other Uh, so the school eventually went all the way to sixth grade and graduated a number of classes and we someone followed up on the kids that graduated from our school at the end of sixth grade and it turned out they all had graduated high school and they all did very well and and, uh, all but two went to um, college and eventually those two were persuaded to also they wanted to be policemen you didn't need college and uh, but they persuaded them to apply get in so we could say 100% and so that was nice and we kept in touch with each other and uh, the kids were interviewed a few times along the way, and they said all the things we would have liked them to say to be the person from outside who interviewed them. We interviewed parents, and and then at some point, um, Ted Sears was, was starting something called the Coalition of Essential Schools, and uh, he came to visit us on our 10th anniversary, and he said, why don't you keep this school going through high school? Which is what the parents wanted to hear. And the district, since he was a famous and important person and knew about secondary education, they said yes, and the chancellor said yes, and the high school division said yes. And uh, so we started Central Park East Secondary School. In the meanwhile, there were two other elementary schools that started in the district uh, because we were so popular. And all kinds of people had told us this won't work in East Harlem. All parents are poor, and all children are black and Latino, and they won't go for your kind of... Um, project-based, open education, uh, te- te- teachers being called by their first name and all that progressive stuff. But not only were we popular, but soon we were cop- popular with not just kids who were in trouble. And uh, we had to open two more schools, Central Park East 2 and River East. And um, I thought we maybe should have had River East 2, but in the meantime, we started the high school. And the high school, I knew, to start a high school, you needed to be a principal uh, It's some state law. So when ninth grade came around, which was right the year after I got that MacArthur, which was extraordinarily lucky, lucky timing, because they were suddenly uh, uh, afraid to deny, say no to me, because at one point they were said no to something they had promised me, and when I said, oh, I guess we won't continue the school then, we'll stop at the in eighth grade. And then I got a phone call back and saying, okay, you got it. <laughs> so those, those were wonderful years. And again, uh, a wonderful staff, and we operated as a democratic community. And um, then I went to Boston after New York turned down the most amazing proposal you can imagine. Uh, $50 million from Annenberg to start 50 more small schools like Central Park East. And uh, I was curious, and I uh, went to Boston and uh, started a pilot school in Boston and called Mission Hill. And I wrote, in the meantime, I started writing books about all three schools. And uh, I would especially like it if people would pick up this, These Schools Belong to You and Me by Deborah Meyer and Emily Gassoy, because um, it didn't do as well as the other two. So, go ahead. And you, and of course, I'll return my royalty to you all. (laughs) What,
0: what? uh, So, about what year did Central Park East start?
1: 1974 and the high school in nineteen eighty five, and Boston nineteen ninety six, and they're all still exist. Except the high school is the opposite of what we intended. After I left, they brought in a principal. Uh, who I think was given the word, kill it, and um, he did. So it's now a school, for a selective school for kids who pass a certain test, and uh, it, it's tr- as traditional as can be. That breaks my heart, but the elementary schools are still going.
0: So by small school, how small? What did, how did you well, define small school then? <laughs>
1: enough if possible or come close so we can all if necessary sit around one table um, and so that everybody can see each other nobody can hide and be quiet And everybody has to at the end of the meeting if there were decisions made that had to be carried out um, everybody had to uh, we called it a fist of five everybody had to agree that they could at least live with it and if they so, couldn't, we didn't let it go. We decided to come back to it the next week.
0: So how, how many students were, uh, were in the school? Uh,
1: in the elementary school, uh, about 250, 200 to 250. And that was a little bit less than that in Boston, Mission Hill. And the high school, uh, 400.
0: Okay, that so included, you... Go ahead. That was
1: about 80 kids per grade okay
0: so 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 you've 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 told us that you had a pretty good run at 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 running and inventing these schools what made them different from from a traditional school
1: well um first of all uh we were built our school around what we called five habits of mind and there were five ways of think thinking about a subject that we thought were uh, underlined Uh, uh democratic schooling the the kind of questioning the questions I can't remember them that we only made five so everybody could easily remember it except me and um, <laughs> one, one of them was uh, how do you know what you know uh, and one of them was uh, supposing that if something had been different what would have If the king had died at the age of 15 what would happen if uh, Trump never mind but um then uh there was um
0: why does it matter uh, someone typed
1: yeah they were all sort of uh, verbal uh ordinary verbal questions that you'd ask about the world and uh, democracy was in a sense taught but it was largely taught because the school was practically ran on those on democratic principles and that was true at mission hill too and we, our argument was that you can't learn science unless you do it, and you can't learn to write well if you don't write and read. And we said you can't learn what it means to be a citizen of a democratic community if you've never experienced being a citizen of a democratic community. And what's better, to learn it first in a small community um, and uh, to see the kind of arguments that teachers have for example, we had the, had the parents wanted the kids to wear hats. So uh, the staff agreed, but the kids naturally didn't. And I didn't either. But I was overruled by, and I said I could live by it. Uh, and the kids would come up to me and say, why did you do that? And I said, I didn't do it. In fact, I voted against it. And you were allowed to tell the kids that there was disagreement and um, that you sometimes went along with things you disagreed with and uh, it so happened that the leader of the among the staff of the wear hats movement uh, didn't seem to notice when kids wore hats in his classroom but if I walked in they still thought of me sort of as a principal and they would take their hats off would infuriate me (laughs) but um, we and then the kids had and. enormous voice in the school, but it was fairly informal. And um, they had a more formal one at Mission Hill, but it was fairly informal. And uh, kids stayed with the same advisor and teachers for two years, seventh, eighth grade, ninth and 10th. And then the last two years, they prepared for graduation, but it wasn't by typical exams. They did what we called exhibitions. They presented a body of their work in each of the major fields and a committee, uh, including some external people, uh, judged whether the work met uh, freshman college standards. And um, uh, sometimes kids had to go back and work on something more because the committee didn't think they met certain standards. And they were judged largely on the same habits of mind that the school was built around. They were habits that really worked well for science, math, English, history, any subject. So um, anyway, uh, and there was a certain amount of informality. We trusted kids and they grew to trust us and their families grew to trust us, which it turns out is terribly important. And the work we did with families is something I'm really proud of because we, we were allies with the family in the raising of children, not the experts. We were all we were experts, and the parents were experts, and together, um, we were preparing these children to become 18 years old. So,
0: so the, I'm sure people have some specific questions, and I'll let you talk about your interest in more on, about democracy in in the classroom, as well as democratic schools and and the, the role of schools in democracy. Um, the term progressive education is being tossed about a lot. How would you define it to someone sitting next to
1: you? You have to understand Dewey was in fact a socialist, a democratic socialist. So uh, his definition was around that every citizens are part of, are the ruling class. There isn't that in the society we live in, there's a separate ruling class that has a very different education than everybody else. And um, their education is to be intellectuals to some degree and to know, to dominate and know how to, impress others um, and the rest of the population was to learn how to obey and know some basics. And Dewey's notion was that uh, democracy won't thrive unless everybody gets an education to be a member of the ruling class, to make the important decisions in life and so forth. So um, that was the definition I, I, I had. I had actually gone to a private Uh, one of those schools for the ruling class (laughs) as a child, and uh, grew up in a kind of radical family. Uh, And um, I wanted to make sure the kids had at least as good an education, even though in some ways slightly different, because some of my education was rather elitist. I didn't think it was necessary to know Latin and Greek. Uh, Wasn't opposed to it, It might be fascinating, but I didn't see any um, I thought it
0: was more important to learn Spanish so the related questions have come up in in previous discussions about is there any evidence that this is better than that than the traditional approach or how do you deal with urban parents who are suspicious of of more progressive child centered constructivist approaches project based learning um, do you have any Any wisdom to share?
1: We had a few parents like that. Very, very few. Because what it turned out is if you treated parents and children with respect, um, they went along. And uh, uh, that's, they raised the same questions about how do they learn this way. And we paid a lot of attention to their questions. We met often with parents. We, you know, the advisors were the ones who had. They only had 12 or 15 students in their advisory, met every day, but they were the ones that called parent meetings. They invited anyone in the family to join, and the uncle and the older brother. They really tried to involve the family in the education of their children. And we're, we were very careful that uh, we not only didn't act patronizing, but that we weren't patronizing. And uh, it was a challenge to us. You know, we were all relatively privileged white. We weren't all white. I mean, in the elementary school, we were about 50-50. The high school, we had a harder time recruiting black teachers, but about a third of our staff was black or Latino. But uh, since 90% of our kids were, it, you know, that it was a um, an obstacle, which we had to overcome. But, it it's overcomable and as i say maybe two parents left because they didn't think it was a real school and you know we started (laughs) we started a whole bunch of other schools during that time i was with the high school we we started about 20 other small high schools around the city that still exist i think they're up to 30 now they're called uh, the consortium schools they don't take the regents exams they graduate much like we did at central park east and uh, they're very, they're, the evidence is quite substantial that they are quite successful. And um, uh, they too tend to get kids who didn't get into one of the specialized exam schools um, or whose parents probably had high, two higher aspirations. At the end, uh, uh, at the time I left New York, both schools had maybe 15 to 20% white population, white middle-class population. And some black and Latino middle-class population, some of the teachers in the district and politicians wanted their kids to come to our school. And you know, a very famous documentary filmmaker made a film about the school called High School Too. And right now we're thinking of trying to make a film with the graduates who graduated 25 years ago since um, we'd like to hear what, looking back on it, what they and teachers from that period, uh, what mattered, what they thought was the thing that mattered most. So I, I'm thinking about what, mat- what I felt mattered, but I, I think it's important for us to begin to hear from our own students what, what we were right not to sacrifice.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I hope the film gets made. Don't, don't. uh, Yeah, don't 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 delay. Um, so a couple a couple more quick questions, and I'll, I'll let you you have uh, have a go, and then we'll involve the audience. Um, since we education suffers terribly from amnesia, and we we don't um, often enough recognize that we stand on the shoulders of giants. Can you can you tell the audience the folks who've gathered about Ted Sizer? Who's Ted Sizer?
1: Well, uh, he was famous for two things. One, for being the head of the School of Education at Harvard. If you're from, if you've gone to Harvard, you are famous. And um, <laughs> and then um, I always loved it when I was in in Boston. People would say, "I'm from." the school i'm from this education school and i'd say which education school and they'd all be it was clear that the education school meant harvard (laughs) there was at least five or six other well-known education schools in the area but the meant harvard Um, and then he had also been the head of a been the principal of i forget which famous prep school one of those famous prep schools in new England and he had written some wonderful books and then
0: was it, andover? A, it was at me? andover or Phillips exeter one of those I think. I
1: think it was Phillips exeter and then he uh wrote a book called horace's compromise in which he described a, he was had been assigned to by the uh, independent school association to do a study of american high schools and he studied both independent schools but focused really on public high schools and he wrote the book about him and I, it's a wonderful book because it's so it is unlike a lot of stuff written about schools very teacher friendly he focuses on a guy named Horace, a teacher named Horace, who is struggling about which compromise to make that he can't possibly do what he was expected to do. To read all the student papers, to know all the children personally, to know their families, to keep up to date in the field, to meet uh, regularly with them, and maybe even to have a family life. So, uh, and he he wrote out 10 principles, I think originally nine, of the compromises we shouldn't make. And the first one was knowing your kids well. And um, there was no way the typical American uh, high school could meet that promise. Teachers saw 150, 160 different te- te- students each semester, sometimes the same and sometimes different. Uh, there's, um, there's no way they could pretend to know them well. If they were lucky, they might remember their names. And surely the only family conferences we used to have were the, the parent and the teacher or advisor, and um, and the homeroom teacher, they didn't really have advisories. You saw someone for 15 minutes at the beginning of the day. And uh, uh, I I knew as a parent, I was meanwhile raising my own three children in public schools in New York, and I knew that those, I hated going to them, they were completely phony because in 10 minutes, which is the most you could spend if they were gonna see all the parents who came in, uh, how much could they tell? And they certainly had no time to add, for me to ask a question. And um, so they gave me a little brief lecture. They looked in their book. They found out my name. They looked in the book and said he's completed 9 out of 12 assignments. And he got this grade. And I thought, you could have written that out. If you don't. Ask me to come out in the evening. So uh, I, I knew that the very first principle couldn't be met. And... Um, if you add to that for kids who come from a different community, sub-community, uh, the suspicions they come with towards um, educated white people who may or may not have their children's interests at heart, um, not to know them is disaster. So what most teachers do is they get to know one class, their top class, their class with the academically most gifted students and uh that and then they get to know maybe the three most difficult kids who are driving them crazy and the rest of the kids are just passed by and uh, and the same their subject matter they're grateful to have a curriculum that doesn't deviate too much and that they don't have to do a lot of preparation for the same one year as the next, and. Um, you know, uh, the year that, uh, what was the year that Thomas, Clarence Thomas was...
0: Um, sure, confirmed, it's Court. Court? Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I, we spent a lot of time on that. The kids were very in, in, intrigued and invested in that, uh, that decision. You know, we, we couldn't cover a lot of other things as a result, but we decided it's more important to uncover than to cover and we really did uncover that those hearings and um, I'm curious when we interview kids how many will remember that and on the Rodney King X event in California the kids said there was protest planned in New York and the kids met in the library at their own initiative and planned that they were going to join it and we had to meet as a faculty and figure out how we were going to handle that do we go along with them do we allow them to leave and, and we decided in the end, to write a letter to parents and say, "You either have to trust your children to do what the, you and they think is right, or you have to keep them at home because we're not going to stop them, and we'll send a few faculty members along to work you know with an eye on their safety and um, and it it was but we argued about it among ourselves about how we what was our responsibility legally and morally. Uh, towards the kids who wanted to be part of it. So it just, um, I think we as adults grew up a lot ourselves. We began to see what democracy requires and uh, for a school we concluded that it has to be small enough to sit around the table because we're it's not like we're deciding abstract decisions. We're or, second one step removed we're deciding questions about what we as do tomorrow and uh, we all have to be in, in that together and uh,
0: what, what, what level of, of of student input was was part of that democratic process
1: there was quite a lot but um i think the kids i'm I, i'm really eager <laughs> when i read the interviews that we were done about 15 years ago um, a man named David Bensman at Rutgers. The kids acted as though they were very involved in all the decisions and and they were but in a kind of uh, because we were all one community there wasn't a sharp divide. We stayed after school uh, to have these meetings and um, sometimes kids joined. They were always welcome to join but most of them did not quite frankly join us. I guess they might have if we'd made them but and then the advisories were in a sense uh, where a lot of decisions were made which then we would bring to the faculty meetings because we stayed with the same kids for two years we knew their families well so uh, we would all raise questions for example the the kids and we raised the question that how come the morning classes seem to be much easier to run than the afternoon classes and um, it started because some teachers said, how come you put all the hard kids on in the, in the afternoon and the easy kids in the morning? And we said that the same kids are here in the afternoon as in the morning. <laughs> and realized that something about the afternoon. And the kids said, let's not have an afternoon. And that became a very popular opinion. Let's have the lunch much later and have, uh, do the things that we enjoy most and that are most active at the end of the day. And uh, that's what we did. Uh, The faculty were at first kind of, you know, won't they get hungry and so forth, but it worked.
0: Um, So, So there was a, so someone posted in the chat, one of our guests posted that he teaches 264 different students per semester.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's absurd to, even with 36 that many elementary schools have, it's absurd. And that's partly what I knew having taught kindergartens with 20, 22 kids. I knew how hard it was to get to know 22 kids and 22 families. And uh, how important it had been. You know, the thing I would find out fast that something I had said to the kids had upset some family. And uh, they knew me well enough, so they would call. And the first words out of my mouth, I learned this was, I'm so glad you called and meant it because ah, it's much better to know what's on their mind than for it to be, you know, going on unhappily behind your back or the kid to know it, but you don't know it. So it really, uh, I think it was an enormous part of our taking for granted. We were all a member of the same community, and we were equals, although we played different roles in a child's life. Uh, And for that matter, we promised the parents that we would keep no secrets from them. So if kids wanted to tell us a secret, they didn't want their parents to know, we uh, couldn't, we'd say, I can't promise you, I might not tell your parents, but I can't promise you I won't, depending on how, but I think they need to know. But if you want to have to, sure that it's a secret, you should go talk to the adolescent clinic at Mount Sinai, which we had a relationship with. And they apparently had an understanding with whoever used the clinic, that uh, children, they could keep children secrets.
0: Seymour Papert used to talk about knowing an idea like you know a person. Yes. Right. No. no. And um, so the last question I'm going to ask you, and then we'll let you add anything you want, or have people ask questions. Is someone someone will ask the question that I'm going to preface a little bit, and then and then ask directly. Um, some people are familiar with the weekly conversation you had with Diane ravage called Bridging Differences in Ed Week, which is probably some of the, the best the best discussions of education in my lifetime. Um, and I think, I'll take my grave, that a large part of Diane Ravitch's religious conversion is owed to those conversations with you. But the question that I was asked was, what, what did you learn from her during those conversations?
1: Well, I, 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 one thing I learned was that things we shared, viewpoints we shared. Uh, she was very uh, serious. She had sent her kids to private schools. And when she visited my school, by the the way, before that conference, she said, gee, if I had known something like this was available when my kids were going to Dalton, I'd send them here. She was serious about wanting kids to have an intellectual, um, you know, to have an intellect that was active and probing. Uh, She tended to think of it as subject matter knowledge. But, um, but I, I realized that we weren't as far apart as the words sounded. And the other thing was that she was very pro-union. She wanted teachers to have rights, and she felt strongly about teachers having more autonomy and more power in the school. Uh, And uh, that uh, she also was uh, uh, attracted more than I was to people with power. and that—that that was part of our difference—was that she wanted to have she, I wanted to have a big influence too, but I did, I didn't require being heard in the halls of power, and I—I I think it mattered more to uh, Diane. Now, it's partly was that she had a husband who was like the second most richest man in New York. Um, no, he's no longer her husband, but but uh, he was. Uh, you know, he did have the kind of power, I think, that she enabled her to travel in those circles. I don't think that was her history, her background. But uh, so I, I think there were a lot of things we could talk about without arguing. And then when we argued, we could refer back to those. So it was some of the same things that you do when you're educating kids, you, you have to see where their strengths are and what their values are. And you have to look for over, some overlaps that can start the discussion.
0: Um. Right. There's, you know, people often get confused about policy versus teaching and learning. They're not necessarily the same. There's a lot more, there are people who are right on policy who are are terrible on teaching and learning and vice versa. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think your, your life's work has demonstrated, you know, an attention to detail to the both, but I I recognize that it's always an interesting question for me about how much I want to be at that meeting, or you talked about the halls of power, you know? When, and most of the time, it's, it's like a 5149 proposition that, it's, <laughs> it's, that, that I might be able to make an impact on it, but there's every chance it's going to be a disaster, and maybe I don't want to have, be associated with it.
1: You know, when, uh, when Cuomo, New York State governor, when he was discussing he's about to start, or he maybe he's already appointed a commission to reinvent schools,
0: Um, Yeah,
1: and um, I looked at the names he put on it. I had two thoughts. One, why would you put those names there if you want to reinvent schools? (laughs) They've already invented what they believe in, and they'd like now to transfer it to computers. And uh, but they want to transfer to computers the same thing that they were doing without computers. And uh, the second thing I thought without all those pesky humans. Yes, and the second thing is I thought was. How come there aren't any teachers or people close to teaching? And then the third thing I thought is, why didn't they ask me? (laughs) Um, Now, it probably would have been a complete waste of time, but a little part of my vanity thought, thought, why why not me? So I, I can understand why Diane was tempted all the time with power, and she's very successful at being the center of attention and you know, she's the first person called on to talk about education. And she's written a great many books and they're all well-reviewed. And she's an important thinker in the field of education. I would say, I now think she's more often a good influence from my viewpoint. You want to take but some questions? So,
0: Go
1: ahead. Well, I, it's, no, I just want to say the other thing I learned from a lot of this was- Please. that. Uh, that being democracy requires some time. I mean, you can't be working full time and then doing the dishes and then putting your kids to bed and be thinking about democracy, doing the reading and everything else that you need to do to be a knowledgeable citizen. And um, that the same was true of school. If we wanted teachers, of course, if we don't want teachers, that's another matter. But if we wanted teachers to be part of the conversation about what a school needs a school as a community, not just their own individual classroom, should be about um, we need they need to have the time and the resources to do that so if, for example, at Mission Hill, we paid every teacher uh, five thousand dollars extra it wasn't a lot to for the extra time that we'd be required to be a democracy and um uh, they it meant something that 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 extra time was valued and uh, that we recognized that we, we all needed extra time if we were to be good citizens
0: well you you famously said that teacher working conditions are student learning conditions
1: Yeah and, and you know from the top down, you know, you have no idea how badly many principals are treated too. You know, there's a hierarchy of power. And uh, each level of the power uh, treats the one below them the way they were treated to a considerable degree. And there were days that I'd go home feeling so humiliated by some clerk downtown who, uh, you know, told me what policy was. I knew it wasn't, but I couldn't get beyond her. and uh, And I, you know, just feel terrible, and I had to get away before I might let it out on somebody else.
0: Good advice. Well, so so you, you want to take some questions? We, we've got, yes,
1: yes, um, yes. So
0: I've got, I've got one I'll just ask that I read quickly, and then we'll let people actually speak with their own voice. What piece of advice would you offer to people who want to start schools today?
1: I, you know, I've been away now too, too long, especially, especially from New York and I don't know enough other places. Um, I don't think it's as open to it. Um, I don't think, despite all the talk about the importance of more autonomy and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. I think there aren't many Tony Alvarado's around today who really will back people. I mean, if we ran into a dilemma, he said, I'll figure out a way you can do that. And you know, like we had a layoff in two of the, new teachers, just starting the school, um, didn't have <laughs> enough seniority. One of them because she'd had a baby and left and came back. And so he said he'd get, for her, his solution was, when he found out she had been a Peace Corps worker in Brazil, um, he said, well, Brazil, they speak Portuguese. We'll get a Portuguese bilingual language. And I said, but nobody in the school speaks Portuguese. By the time they find that out that, <laughs> on some other license, <laughs> and that, uh, he, you know, he, he he wasn't a gotcha guy. Uh, he was really a remarkable person, and they, you know, he was a, he was the chancellor for a very short period of time, and then they got him for some stupid mistakes he made.
0: Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I I find for all the rhetoric about innovation and breaking the mold and. There's, there's not a, a great appetite for doing anything more than the sort of nonsense that Cuomo was listening to.
1: Well, the, innovation sometimes means they want courses to be harder. Yeah. <laughs> and more tests. And that's the other thing I discovered, you know, that tests were absolutely a phony. They were, the only thing that they showed was what, what much money you made. They were almost an exact Determiner how much income your family had, and uh, that's, they weren't very good at measuring how educated you were.
0: So one of, one of my old friends, one of the great kindergarten teachers of the world, Peter Rawich, has a question he'd like to ask you.
1: Thank you. Hello, Peter. Hi, thanks, Gary. I'm I'm calling today from my hospital bed in Wilmington, North Carolina. I've I've been hospitalized for, uh, for nine days, and I'm almost ready to go home, I've, I've enjoyed this presentation, and as a result, I've been able to watch a lot more TV than I normally would, being in a, in a hospital room, and so I have a lot of uh, thoughts about uh, racism on my mind, and I was wondering if you could give an example of how racism was either acknowledged or addressed um, in one of your schools. Terrific, well, thanks. when well, I was talking about how parents, how we worked with families, partly that was my observing. uh, I was an advisor for a short, I was a two years I spent with Sizer traveling around America myself, looking at schools. And I was struck by the attitude of even very liberal white teachers towards, and some black teachers, by the way, towards the families of the children they taught. And I realized how You know, we love our parents. Um, We can be mad at them, but we love them. And um, it's very hard to learn in a place where you think your parents are being put down and disrespected. So, um, And this has to do with race and racism, some assumptions. You know, when I took teacher education courses, they told me that lower class black children didn't have language now I happen to have lived in a largely integrated part of this uh, Chicago and uh, there was a playground across the street and so I was there often and the one thing was clear to me was that children were not without language black low-income children were not without language and their parents were not without love and, I mean I but there was really nothing I could say that would persuade the teachers at Chicago Teachers College and so forth and my fellow students took Counter that notion that that uh, they can't think in abstract terms, but they don't have you know a whole set of assumptions that were essentially racist, and uh, that affected our schools. Now and the other question is that uh, you know they since I was raising my kids also in public schools, I knew a lot. They knew a lot more about the uh, the kind of racism that young people experience with the cops. That was different than what they experienced. In other words, if they went to the subway and snuck in, they would get told they were naughty, but if a black kid did it, they would be arrested. I mean, they would come home with the stories of the uh, awareness of the difference between uh, they were treated. So, And I had grown up in a family that was active in civil rights and the s- southern uh, poverty movement. Um, uh, Poverty movement in Southern poverty, and uh, I'd also been active before I started teaching i didn't start teaching until my thirties because I'd been active in the civil rights movement so i I had some advantages i was uh, that a lot of teachers don't have for constructing schools that made us bold enough to ask ourselves difficult questions and to make sure that Uh, we spoke up if we noticed our colleague was uh, saying something that could be construed as racist. So we we did a lot of work on that and we did a lot of work with parents on that and uh, you know what how do some things sound if one of the black teachers presents it versus if I presented. So we did a lot of work with families on uh, the role our race played in our relationship and uh, I, I think I I'm th- I feel sure talking to some of those teachers now that um, it had an impact on all of us uh, now they were teachers who were to some extent predisposed to wanting to understand this issue but um, I think you're right to uh, we're certainly seeing today the impact and I often say to people talking about democracy as well as racism uh, that it is in many ways schools fault. They spend kids spend 12 years in an essentially segregated racist environment uh, with teachers who hold these mistaken beliefs and uh, that don't run like uh, prisons one you know from top down there's nothing democratic. Uh, the army is probably somewhat more democratically run than most schools and uh, that has a big impact on young people um, who don't go up in small towns uh, where they see so I'm now talking about even middle class white kids don't see democracy in operation they don't see what it's like to argue with each other and um, Of course, I came to it from a family that did nothing but thought arguing with each other was a sign of respect. My father would say, grumble, you know, if we didn't argue with him, don't you respect me? (laughs) So um, um, I probably added a certain amount of argumentation to the school climate.
0: Fantastic. Who has once put their hand up and ask a question? A little bit of time we have remaining. Ah, uh, Wade, Wade. Well, I see Wade, so we'll. Uh, I'll unmute you. Go
1: for it, Wade. Thank you. Um, it is such an honor to hear you speak tonight, Miss Meyer. Uh, I just finished my twenty-sixth year of classroom teaching here in Virginia, <laughs> and uh, your your work is a cornerstone of my practice. And it's just so fantastic to be with you. Um, Do you think our country is ready for a practicing classroom teacher as United States
2: Secretary of Education?
1: Uh, It depends on the the teacher. You know, there isn't such a thing as a, what do we call it? You know, as a model of what teacher is. So um, it depends, it depends. I think it would be a challenge for someone who hasn't, um, doesn't see them, you know, who has been diseducated. By their life in schools, and you know what I'm. I don't know what kind of school you come from, but a lot of teachers um, are t- very timid people. They're willing to be tough with their kids, but they're very timid towards authority. And um, you know, there was teachers who would come to me and say, "Would I bring up something at a staff meeting?" And I'd say, "Why can't you?" Well, teach, principal treats you differently than me. But the principal taught. Treated me different because I spoke up. And, uh, you know, I think teachers have been trained to be docile towards authority. And a person who's spent 20, 25 years being docile would not make a very good Secretary of Education. So we need, we need to hope they'll find a nice, tough um, teacher. Because um, I think the combination. You know, someone who has that experience and who has that feeling for it. And particularly at this moment in history, as someone who's been, if not themselves, a person of color, has been in an interracial school or a largely black school.
0: Okay, Bob Kahn, and and then I'm hoping some women will be less docile. Yeah, some women and speak are a up. little
1: more docile than men. <laughs> women, speak
0: up. Uh, Thank you, uh, Miss Meyer. It's very it, again. It's all. It's an honor to spend time with you this evening. Um, my question is related to the the first question uh, a question ago. Um, I'm wondering if if you could comment on the giving of grades to students to measure their success, because my feeling is that that may also be part of this. Racist system that is in our education system.
1: Thank you. You are you are right on. It's both uh, the tests and the, the the two forms we now use. You know, A, B, C, D, and you know, whatever it is, and uh, standardized tests um, have both different forms of racism, but they rest on the same racist basis. The tests are actually designed, which most people don't realize. The, they already know ahead of time how kids will answer those questions, and so um, they choose the array of questions that will produce the gap that we complain about. and uh, i i I did a study once for uh, some foundation, and I interviewed a lot of kids. I read to them uh, different backgrounds and then asked them questions and they read to me and so forth. And it was clear that uh, the questions they got wrong were perfectly right. <laughs> they just presupposed a different explanation. My son taught me first of all, he was a very original young man, but <laughs> uh, he uh, he He got in trouble in school because when we came to New York, they thought he needed remedial reading, and he was an absolutely fluent third-grade voracious reader. So I tried to I brought home a test, sample test, and asked him to deal with it. And he would say to me when we were going over together, "I know they want me to say C, but B is really a better answer." So I said, "So which would you say? Put down B, of course. It's the better answer." And I'd say, "But you know that they don't know." that, so they'll mark it wrong. He said, no, I write a little note next to it. explaining." It. I said, they don't, the mach- person, the, the machine that scores us doesn't know how to read. I said, so they don't read your answer. Anyway, uh, and the same, of course, is true of ABCD, which kids talk up more often, raise their hand, uh, please the teacher, stay after. Uh, what, you know, my kids would say to me is is, uh, <laughs> that they hated to ask, they hated to ask questions that they knew the class, someone should ask, because it hadn't been well explained. But they knew that whoever asked a question that the teacher thought they ought to understand was considered stupid. So you have to answer the, you learn to raise your hand for the hard question, but don't raise it for the easy question. As there were all kinds of things that they figured out about schooling, aside from being white to start with. That uh, so, I, I what we did was we wrote reports home and we had family conferences, and we didn't have 10 minute ones, we had long ones. And um, they we had them after the family had read the report and discussed it with their own child, and then they came in with the questions, and the kid came with them. So, uh, you know, so if the teacher said something that didn't agree with, they would raise it then. But I did hand in everything, no, I took that test. Uh, and uh, things like that. So it really made a difference. And then as I described the graduation process, kids really had enormous respect for that graduation process. They knew they were really being judged by people they would respect uh, on the basis of things that they knew and understood. And if they had to go back and work on it more, they they didn't leave the room feeling terrible. I, I, I
0: find grading to be um, not only lazy, but but a, a form of bullying. When people talk about, you know, ending bullying in schools, we ought to take a hard look at how the institutional bullying that's built into the, the architecture of the school day. So let's, Jenny Orr's got a question. Go for it, Jenny. Let me unmute you. Okay, I think you're good.
2: Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Gary. Um, Deborah, one of the things that I've so appreciated on your blog over the past several years has
0: been when you've recommended books for educators, and I'm curious, in this moment, with all that's happening, what, over the past few decades, would you suggest would be the best books
1: for teachers to be reading? That's funny you should ask. There's a very wonderful book by someone named Elijah Hawkes, Uh, and I'm just, just not sure of the title of the book. He was, a, perf- he was a, a head teacher at a very nice little high school in New York City, uh, one of the small high schools in a larger building, called um, the uh, James Baldwin High School. And then he went up to Vermont, a real extreme opposite, <laughs> in a way, and, uh, to be principal. And the book is really wonderful. So if you look up his name, A-J-W-K-E-S. Uh, I've got a, got. got a link
2: coming.
0: I've got a link coming. The schools for school for the age of upheaval
1: has it just come out recently uh, I mean, I, You know, I, uh, maybe yes 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 okay then that's it <laughs> um then uh there is um uh, there's a book about uh, I, I can't there's a number of other books i'm going to try to get back to my blog and answer your question because uh um, I don't know if you did read the last book that Emily and I wrote, but I do urge you that. But you know, one of the things that I think is uh, also true is, it's worth reading some of the books that I read when I first started teaching, uh, like John Holt's books, uh, and books by uh, uh, Sylvia Ashton Warner, for an elementary school teacher, and Horace's Compromise, and wonderful books by a man named Mike Rose. The first of which was uh, Lives Across the Boundary and the last of which I think is was called Minds at Work. And uh, he's a wonderful writer and a, a wonderful human being. Um, so it's not a bad idea to go back and uh, some of those books are not a uh, suggestion in courses anymore, but they should be.
0: All right, let's take one or two quick questions. And I've been recommending plenty of books forever as well. So um, some of those have been shared recently. Um, anyone else have a question? Yeah, Yeah. so this the obvious question is, um, while someone else puts their hand up, um, there's, there's probably never been a period of less certainty in education as what the teachers are dealing with right now and what they may be walking into in September. And there's been various questions about you know advice for teachers being told they can't do projects because of COVID-19, or why should the you know what's what's just a sort of generic advice for
2: a yeah. group
1: Imagine doing a group project <laughs> everybody being six feet apart. Um, uh, I think it's we need to really talk more, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, Gary, because uh clearly what we're walking back into is a very regressive step in education where uh, kids don't hang out together and where teachers don't know students personally and um and i'm not arguing that we should not we should not do those things if it's necessary for health reasons but i think we have to think about the consequences and what we can do about the consequences, because to raise young people without, uh, without the world of play, and I mean intellectual play, personal play, and play um, <laughs> takes a certain kind of space and freedom and so forth that is very hard. I have a, a granddaughter who's teaching in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and her description of what's happening to her um, as she tries to invent better ideas, and there hasn't been a lot of room for people. I mean, your workshop in a way is more needed than ever. Uh, you know, in other words, I don't know how you could have done it, but it's, we need to get together with the people who think the way we do, Gary, and figure out what teachers will do.
0: Well, you know, I, I and, and in some ways, it's easier to to. Simulate intimacy and collaboration and projects online than than the images we're seeing of these pens that oh. that children are going to be stuck in with you know funny hats that keep them six feet apart. Um, but I mean, how about just you know I I see a couple. I'm going to ask two more people questions after this. But how about just some advice about self care for the teachers who are who are living through this?
1: What self care? Yeah, just things, uh, you know. Uh, find a few fellow teachers who you can, um, and, and you know, that's important at all times. and We need our colleagues. We need those communities of friends and principals need that too. And sometimes principals are colleagues, but, uh, you need some people to, uh, come because it's the, it's play by solo play is better than no play. But the thing about play is the interchange between people, and um, uh, it, this is a time we need group play. Find some colleagues.
0: Okay, so I'm going to ask allow two more questions, David C, and then Janice Long if Janice still has a question. So, David, you're unmuted. Yeah. Hi. Well, thanks for doing this. It's been wonderful. So, having the experience of creating such wonderful schools, and then you have what happened at the high school, where despite all the wonderful things you did and how expectations were exceeded, systemically it gets taken away. So beyond opening schools and doing great things, which is wonderful by itself, what else needs to be done such that, you know next administrator that comes along or next whatever, they undo what you've done and the system doesn't really change for more kids.
1: Um, we need to elect some people uh, of a type we don't usually elect. I was hoping that Bernie was that kind of person, but uh, because you're right, it's it is. I can't. You can imagine how painful it was to see them do that. And um, but uh, we we persuaded Annenberg. That was made it even more painful to create a zone where, like the consortium but a zone that had 50,000 students and that, was, uh, that represented the population of New York City and that they would use this 50 million dollars that he offered them to develop an alternate way of really largely to uh, help schools like this make the transition and the other was to develop alternate ways to hold schools as a community accountable. And we had some terrific ideas, and uh, uh, you know, we got approval from the governor, the state board, the chancellor, the school, the union. Everybody approved it. And then a new chancellor came in, and he said, "No, I don't want to do it." And that was the end of it. Uh, and um, I thought maybe the, there'd be a stink from other people. I made a fuss, but. Very few, you know, Annenberg didn't make a fuss. That was what made me mad. Uh, they Everybody had accepted his proposal. And we had begun to carry it out. So it was painful to see him collapse, too. Because I think at that moment, if he had said, we'll remove the money then. Oh, he he continued to get the money. Just it wasn't for any purpose anymore. And uh, if he had said, we'll withdraw the money and we'll do it publicly, it'll be in the press. That um, Rudy Crew would have maybe given in, but yes, I don't. I it's very very hard, and it's so too idiosyncratic. You know, we had Tony Alvarado, uh, but it there isn't a, uh, there isn't a uh, larger climate of support and understanding of what we're talking about, and it's not surprising because. Everybody has a certain defensive posture towards their own education. People who were terribly educated often don't want to acknowledge they were. And uh, they'll say that was the way it was done for me, and it was good enough for me. Um, My father beat me, and it was good enough for me. There's a certain mentality towards, sentimentality towards the way you were treated as a child that I think makes the people who run our system have an easy audience to persuade that change is not good.
0: Well, so I don't want to bring everyone down, but Central Park East 1 just went through a bout of that as
1: well, right? Yes, but the parents fought back and they won. And um, yes, that's that's good. And these 30 consortium schools are still alive. And a woman named Ann Cook has held them together. Um, I think if I'd stay, you know, had held them together. I left. I left the principalship to run this project, and that was a mistake. <laughs> I think if I had still been um, principal, I could have stayed and done something about it. Maybe, maybe that's vanity, but um, it hurt. You're right, that's a, that's a terrific question. Seymour Saracen wrote a book once called The Inevitable Failure of School Reform.
0: The Predictable Failure. A,
1: Predictable failure. And I went, I read it before I started the secondary school, uh, particularly because, uh, and I wrote down all his <laughs> predictions and said I'm going to overcome them. But um, he was right. And that's what he said. <laughs> he described what happened to us. You know, people this, say they die out when their founders leave. They don't die out, they're killed murdered
0: yeah ideology is plenty powerful is there someone
1: is there a from angie it says
0: is there an angie and angie uh she said she would give anything to work in a school where you were the principal um Not is give there anything
1: to work in a school where she was the teacher
0: <laughs> you can put that on your website Let's now you have to have it. a website I'm coming too. I'm I, I'm right. I'm eager to I'm eager to have a canvas to paint on. Um anyone else have a question before we announce the next speaker and let Debbie get back to her life. This is your last chance, folks. Someone Keep put going, their hand up. Going. Janice Long's been waving. I'm unmuting you, Janice Long, you got it.
2: Okay. Hi, Janice. Hi. I may be in a little bit different situation than a lot of people here, but um, I know this whole online learning thing has been a big learning curve for everybody, a big change. Uh, I teach home economics, and what I have found as an unexpected event out of this is that I feel like the the whole situation that it's put people in—we're taking back some of what has been lost, maybe in traditional schools before, and it's giving an open door for parents to become more involved in a creative way in their child's education instead of standing back and not being a part of it and especially with something like some of the options i've been able to do in my class i've given them lots of lots of choice lots of flexibility but to see the results when they're coming up with cooking shows that the parents and the students have been part of is so so awesome especially when i tell them that they both did a great job the mother was ecstatic but um Debbie, what do you see as some recommendations you would make? Oh,
1: your you're stuff? just getting me excited.
2: That's a lovely idea. They Where are you? Where,
1: you? Where are you?
2: In um, Abbotsford, British Columbia. I suggested they're good. They've got to be careful of not going out to buy supplies, so alter a recipe. Make it with what you've got. Don't go out and do stuff. Yeah, we
1: used to cook in school a lot. Exactly. And send home, so, I, I, you know, I hadn't thought about that.
2: For they this. were doing sewing. They were but, making face masks, but... Now you know, also. You know, do you think
1: it differs for the and right now? Of course, lots of parents can't work. But if parents were working, and even for some of the parents I know who uh, are not working, um, especially teachers who are working but at home, or a lot of the professions, my son works at home. Um, can, you know, that's what's it going to do to <laughs> will it fall back for women to stay home so they can be online? Support system, I, I, I'm, and especially if the ideas are creative, uh, where kids yeah, can't just sit down and fill in worksheets. Do they need yeah. an belt around to show them to you know help them measure out uh, a cup of flour or whatever? But
2: well, it's so practical. They were making lists of tracking their family's food consumption for a week, making grocery lists. Um, you know, making a meal for their family. So I think the payoff for parents, whether they're working or not, is if you take the time to teach your kids some of these things, it's going to benefit everybody. But my question for you in this is, what recommendations or suggestions do you have that can make the online situation as beneficial and as fruitful as possible, given that we may be, this may be part of the reality of our school for for a good while yet, or a blend of... Well, a lot of what... A lot of what uh, we do in a good early childhood
1: classroom could be reproduced in older grades, which we found. You know, we had kids go home and make uh, uh, what do you call it, a floor plan of their house, and then think about what the square footage for different shapes and, and how difficult it was, especially in apartment buildings, for yeah. kids to know, have a sense of what the outside perimeter was. Uh, but it was fascinating, where does the son come in and begin to look at uh, the, their apartment in that way? And uh, to show the route home on a map, uh, how did they, you know, if they walk or take the subway. Uh, and we had kids do family histories, interview the members of their family, and put together family books and family trees. And, uh, of course, um, we had water tables and sand tables and blocks um and some parents may have such things but you I was recently that do you get trivia on your cell phone there's this some little game they call trivia and i thought sometimes it's it's fun i've been having i mean sometimes it isn't but that there are <laughs> probably a lot of games that um uh that are highly educational that uh with a, sometimes you may twist them a little and you know Play Monopoly a little differently, or play yeah. checkers differently, so I think there are um, avenues of that sort, but cooking we all of our classrooms in the up through seventh grade did cooking, so I'm so glad you've thought of that um, and artwork of all sorts um, um, from just copying things from, you know the variations on the artwork and yeah. Uh, but it takes the kind of creativity that teachers have not been encouraged to use in the past. So you're right. In some ways, we've never done that, especially in high schools. Yeah. And uh, so if we could introduce use this period to introduce them to some things that early childhood people are more used to on a high school level, that might work. I bet Gary is full of ideas. Uh, Gary, you need to put out a book
0: now. I'm oh, working
1: on one, mean, but uh, I, I'm wor-
0: I'm working on one. I don't know how much I'm going to go into yes. telling people what to teach, but I'm gonna. It's gonna have well, a lot you're... of things to think about. Yes. But I, 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 I agree with you. I mean, I, I've, I've been fascinated by the question for years of why is it that some teachers have a million ideas for activities like that, and 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 it's so hard for lots of others. Um, And is there anything you can do about that? Um, Grant is, you know-
1: Give that lady lady an extra show. (laughs) uh, Absolutely. That's partly what if you got to get, if teachers got together with other teachers, maybe one of them could uh, help the rest think of ideas.
0: Well, one of the things that's been liberating about this moment is, and there's actually some people collecting data on this, is how quickly, school leaders abandoned the curriculum and testing and all the other stuff because they were in they were in free fall. They were panicking. They had to do something quick. And so all of a sudden they were they were they're actually saying things like teaching and learning is no longer my highest priority. Um and and I get a little nervous about that because the priorities became um child minding and fast food you know provision of feeding kids and watching them surveilling them um but i think that one of the things we can do in this period is reclaim teaching and learning and say no 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 that's the point of school
1: that's and, that's, and show them ways even with their child watching to watch a child in new kinds of ways uh, not just babysitting uh which many people thought is all early right. childhood teachers did anyway but to really uh, teach young people how to bake, how to child watch uh, and how what to understand they learn. The thinking
0: learn. How to understand the thinking of their kids, you know, that's the yeah. all the, the lessons that I learned from my my colleagues in Reggio Emilia. Um, so yeah, there'll be more, there'll be more writing from me and more materials and more conversations like this. Um, would, would you all just join me in uh, metaphorically at least thanking my friend Deborah Meyer for sharing an hour plus with us. It's incredibly generous of you to do so. Um, I we could probably unmute all the mics somehow. If Sylvia could figure that out, people can cheer. Um, but in the meantime, um, I want to can want can we share? Can I get the announcement ready? Um, there will be some additional sessions. Um, stay, you know, look on Twitter, and and see and see what's coming up. Um, because we're trying to avoid Zoom bombing, we're requiring people to register for each of these Ask Me Anything sessions. Uh, I know it's a pain, but we appreciate you doing it. And if we announce an event or share a resource, please share it with a larger audience. One, it breaks my heart that we have these kinds of opportunities to speak with with brilliant educators like like Debbie and, and so few of you have had the opportunity to participate. Um, I, it's a great joy of my life to be able to share my my heroes and my sheroes and, and friends and inspirations with, with other educators. Um, and Sylvia put the slide up. If you wanna to contribute to keeping this going, um, you can just go to paypal.me slash Gary Steger. And we, we may have another session before this one, but I'm going to announce that we've confirmed that Dennis Litke is going to be my guest. Uh, on June 23rd, the time is going to change. He's going to be on at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. Um, but um, Dennis is a serial school inventor who has done the hard work that, that Debbie has been talking about and we've been discussing in other sessions, and he's done it at the high school and, and higher education level. He's, he's reinvented high school and higher education and scaled it and sustained it for decades. Um, so he's extraordinary. I've tried to get him to Constructing Modern Knowledge for 13 years, and he's always busy in July. And I got confirmation this afternoon that that he will join us in this format on the 23rd. Um, Debbie, you want to give a quick... Uh,
1: oh, he, 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 he is marvelous. We we met uh, right when the coalition was starting, and he had, uh, had just started a high school, become the principal of a high school in New Hampshire. And he is, uh, he does things that I'm afraid to do. <laughs> he really goes far out and then he makes them work. Uh, I have such trust in him. When he starts something, he's going to figure out how to make it work. And he's done wonderful things. They're now uh, big picture schools all over the country, all over the, the world. All over the world, probably, yes. And they, I visit a lot of them and it's amazing. How many of them really? Because uh, I don't tend to think you can replicate. But he's an example in which uh, something he did was uh, he managed to replicate, and then he's now got this college on bound, or whatever the title is. And also, he's just fun. He's a very—he's a lot of fun. You're going to enjoy that. Oh, I'm going to watch him. Uh, we'll walk? we'll make
0: sure, and I will and I will keep my promise to stay in touch with you and and with the rest of you as well um so thank you everyone for being here and we'll see you shortly we hope you enjoyed this constructing modern knowledge podcast our theme music is jazz impromptu by brian lynch holistic For podcasts and additional inspiration, check out our website, live.constructingmodernknowledge.com. Be sure to visit cmkpress.com. That's cmkpress.com.
2: For books by creative educators, for creative educators.